Hello and welcome to our FinTech in Focus podcast. I'm Matt O'Callaghan, Head of our Financial Services Practice in Asia. Today I'm joined by Claire Harrop, a Senior Associate in our Financial Services Regulatory Group in London. Hi there. And Natalie Pettinger-Carney, who is our Deputy Head of EU Regulatory and Public Affairs in Brussels. Hello. Thanks, Natalie and Claire, for joining today. Our FinTech in Focus podcast is our series that gives a little tilt towards FinTech developments so you can stay up to date on where they're coming from and why they may matter to you and your business. Today, we wanted to visit the topic of open banking. So is open banking really here? It's a topic that arrived with much fanfare several years back, but we're now starting to see the financial innovation of open banking that was promised being delivered by many of the fintechs with a range of services that traditional banks could not deliver on their own. This podcast is unlikely to be appealing to those of you we are working with that are waiting through the implementation programs, but it is designed to share our thoughts with those of you who may be impacted in one way or another, or as the rules weave their way into our complex web of financial services regulation. Before we get too much further into it, Claire, how would you describe open banking? Are we talking about data, APIs, apps, or is it just another descriptive consumer right? So thank you, Matt. It's a really good question. And open banking, the term can mean different things to different people. Fundamentally, open banking is a way of facilitating sharing of consumer data between banks and other third party service providers where that consumer has consented to do so. Typically, open banking relies on APIs as the bridge that makes it possible for two systems to talk to each other and to share data. And the sort of data that might be covered are the sort of thing that a bank holds in the context of providing traditional banking services. So information on where I've been spending money from my bank account, for example. In the UK, so in around sort of 2016, uh, the Competition and Markets Authority looked into re the retail banking market and effectively found that older, larger, incumbent institutions didn't really compete enough for business. So in addition to implementing the sort of the fairly broad open banking provisions that are set out in PSD2, the UK regime effectively requires the nine biggest banks and building societies to use the same standards and to use specified APIs to provide access to the data that they hold. This process and implementation hasn't been entirely smooth. It's taken time and it's been sort of reasonably challenging. But I think the idea has been generally seen to be pretty positive, at least by policymakers anyway. Natalie, how have other EU jurisdictions approached PSD2? I think it's fair to say that the EU as a whole could be categorised as a leading jurisdiction in the space. And, and as you rightly said, really driven through the Payment Services Directive, which became applicable in January 2018. So like the UK, the idea was really to level, level the playing field for new market entrants and, and foster competition. And the PSD2 rollout is happening, but I think it's safe to say it's not particularly quickly and not yet really fully to its maximum. There are thousands of banks in Europe, all with quite different business models, and the PSD2 rules do leave quite a lot of space for implementation. So unlike the UK, for example, we're not working with one single standard across the EU single market. As a result, you can imagine that you are left with quite different approaches, 
to open APIs. And of course, there is resistance from some of the incumbents to creating an open API as, as it is losing data, um, you, you could argue. So while some of the traditional institutions may not have been necessarily fans of the concepts to start with, I think they are starting to see one of the benefits and they are at the end of the day, one of the more customer facing financial services propositions. So there is an opportunity to combine data sets and to develop broader services for clients. Um, and much like the UK, policymakers in the EU definitely see the measures as having been broadly successful and are pushing to go even further quite soon. What about Asia, Matt? Are things moving ahead at the same sort of pace or not so much? Yeah, things have been a little bit slower. I'd say in Asia, we've seen a, a real drive towards access for banking, driving that competition in financial services and reducing some of the impediments around cross-border payment flows. And, and because of that, we haven't really seen a single approach uh, in Asia. And that's sort of driven this divergence in success around how open banking initiatives have been implemented to date. I think we can largely look at Asia as having three key ways in which open banking is being looked at. There are the mandatory jurisdictions where there's been a regulatory mandate to change and, and implement enabling legislation and regulations in order to, to bring about open banking and open it up. In that category, we see India and Australia having taken the, the lead there. India still got a little bit more to work to do, um, but we have seen even just over the last couple of weeks, a number of unicorns uh, emerging in, in India just because of the value that is being attributed to the potential work and potential for that particular market. I think Australia is probably a little bit further down the track. Uh, it's been a, a standard setter here in the region with some of its work around consumer data right rules. And we're expecting the final phase of that to go live through the course of this year. But what's really interesting about that is just the control it gives back to consumers and sort of changing that ownership and that governance framework away from the banks and investing more of that back with consumers. So I think that's likely to be a theme that we'll see further down the track and potentially in some of the developments that I know that are happening in Europe. The next category is really those supportive or market-driven jurisdictions. They're openly encouraging measures to boost API adoption, such as Singapore and Japan and Hong Kong. When you leave the market to solve a problem, you really have to look at the balance of power that exists between um, those different players. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. That has led to a slightly slower adoption in some of those markets. The final market that we look at are the neutral jurisdictions. Uh, so the, the best example of that is China. I think, you know, competition in financial services there is, is particularly high. Um, the payment providers have really been key drivers for innovation. And a result of that, they've developed a range of consumer tools, which the banks are now looking to find ways in which to compete against. I think here, if I take it back to Hong Kong, you know, we seem to be stuck uh, on the second of four stages, but hopefully, you know, some of the governance arrangements around of security features and, and how you can protect data that is provided to third-party providers and fintechs, that will start to ease up over the next uh, couple of months as we see uh, all of the, you know, the successful implementation of that in Europe and other parts of Asia. So Natalie, if I'm now a consumer, like why would I care about open banking and what do we see as the, the key benefit and policy drivers behind these initiatives for consumers? Yeah, so, I mean, we've talked about competition as being a key driver, but I think probably from the consumer side of things, so not looking at the policymakers, the, the real opportunity is around control. Um, and for 
individuals to have more control over their own transactional data and as well as, you know, to which products and services they consume in relation to their bank accounts and from which service providers they wish to buy the respective product or service. So there's a lot of potential use cases, whether you're looking at savings, loans, pensions, mortgages, and, you know, the list goes on. Financial management in particular and onboarding are probably the two areas where we see a lot of investment to provide solutions right now. So you're really seeing possibilities for better, more tailored, customer-centric offerings. Switching providers is becoming easier. Administrative costs can be reduced quite significantly. But in practice, there is some reluctance there and there is what you could call an attitude behavior gap. So customers are still quite wary. And I think a major factor there is really consent. And then you couple that with low consumer awareness as well. So I mentioned before, there's also reluctance on the side of incumbents. Um, But in addition, there are challenges around compliance with GDPR, financial discrimination and possibly exclusion, as well as data breach risks. So I think there's a lot of concerns on the consumer end that could maybe put hurdles in the way of consumers really reaching for these solutions. But COVID has given all forms of digital services and products a real boost in the last year. So not least in the financial space. So I think it's safe to say that some of those hurdles will be overcome probably more quickly than than initially envisaged. I mentioned the incumbents before, but Matt, maybe you can spend a bit more time telling us what the challenges and what the dynamics are uh, for some of these incumbent financial institutions. Yeah, Natalie, it's really interesting. I mean, you, you mentioned about COVID being a driver for, you know, for change and, and, and being able to open up a, a lot of those um, services that consumers need to be able to access in, in different ways than what we were used to. But I think, you know, even if we take it back a little bit further, for a long time, we saw banks expanding across the vertical silo. They wanted to be everything to everyone. And I think what we have seen in that post-GFC period a raft of financial regulation, but also a raft of capital charges that have made a lot of those businesses and those business decisions that were made pre-2008 no longer making sense in a capital intensive environment. So there is sort of this sort of push towards banks needing to be, um, you know, needing to find ways to innovate more, but they're not doing that in a way that is so capital intensive. So I I think whilst the banks uh, are somewhat reluctant to move in this direction, I think there is a fantastic opportunity here for tie-ups to find an efficient way to grow the top line uh, with a realistic possibility of bringing a lot of these products to the market in a far quicker way than they might have been able to do themselves. Some of the recent reports suggest that, you know, even a $100 billion growth in balances can generate $300 million in revenue. So there can be some opportunities here for banks to, to really explore if they can find the right tie-ups and find the right combination of products to offer out to their clients. I think the challenge for banks on the flip side of that is, you know, if they're working with fintechs and other tech companies, a lot of the time it's still going to mean that the banks are having to manage a lot of the regulatory and potentially also the contractual risks as against their clients and consumers. So that's going to be a, a sort of a delicate balance that they're going to have to find the, the right mix on. What we'll see is as a lot of the open banking initiatives uh, come to fruition in different markets, just making sure we've got that right balance of input across the three sectors from consumers and from the banks and the financial services companies that are already in the regulatory space 
and potentially those coming uh, from a, a more, I guess, technology background or even new startups on the fintech side, um, that we just get that that dimension of everyone providing their aspect and finding ways in which you can balance the three of those needs. But Claire, maybe you could just sort of round out, I mean, where do the fintechs see the benefit and what are their concerns around open banking? I mean, it's entirely right to look at open banking in the context of, of fintechs as well. I mean, alongside consumers, they were really sort of some of the targets of uh, the open banking provisions and have really been some of the beneficiaries just because they're able to then access data that is held by other institutions that they would otherwise not have necessarily had the right to be able to do so. And I think we've already seen that it's led businesses to launch new products and services that weren't previously available. That's both providing those services on their own, but also, as you mentioned, Matt, uh, partnering with other incumbent institutions and sort of working in a partnership. The difficulty, at least for fintechs, sometimes in the UK and the EU, is is that the access right is only available for businesses that are appropriately authorised. And that can be seen as quite a high barrier to entry. And then institutions that do hold payment account data are still able to reject access in some, albeit fairly limited, circumstances. Another sort of slight difficulty is that even if there is a right for a fintech to access the data and the institution that holds the data is kind of happy for them to do so, there might be practical difficulties if the standards and APIs used differ between institutions. And Natalie mentioned that, you know, there was no set standards across the EU, and that could be a difficulty that sort of arises there. And then the final point I'd just make is that open banking only provides access to, or only sort of provides a right to access to payment account data rather than other types of financial data. Although we are seeing policymakers starting to move into leveraging the success of open banking and expanding the principles to other types of data sort of more broadly. In the UK, we've seen this sort of because the UK's FCA recently published a feedback statement on, on what we term open finance. And they've concluded that open finance could offer significant benefits to consumers and to competition. But there are sort of still some concerns that open finance could create or increase risks or raise new questions of, of data ethics uh, that should be considered right from the start. And that managing those risks is something that's likely to need appropriate regulation, a legislative framework and quite a lot of careful consideration. So I think it's safe to say that the that access to more types of financial data is, is likely to be the direction of travel in the UK, but probably not in the immediate short term. Natalie, is there anything that's kind of coming out of the EU on this broader sort of data range? You mentioned earlier that that might be the case. Yeah, absolutely. The European Commission has quite strong ambitions for open finance, and, and that fits into a much broader data strategy of many more component parts whether it's the Data Governance Act or the Data Act, the Digital Markets Act. And so also politically, it's it's about putting the EU on the map compared with global competitors and trying to set the pace and standards for others to follow. Crucially, also whilst giving EU companies a bit of a competitive boost. And that ties in with some of the EU's more, I would say, geopolitical aims um, around what it's calling open strategic autonomy. But in finance, certainly, there is the ambition to create a financial data space. And, and the big headline really is that the Commission wants to have an open finance framework in place by 2024. And there will be legislation proposed to make that a reality by the middle of next year. 
I'd say probably the focus on ownership and control of data is really the the USP that the EU is betting on, whilst also hoping that a clear legislative framework does bring the business to Europe. And we do have a bit of a live test case at the moment in Europe in the insurance space. And IOPA has launched a public consultation, um, which has really kicked the door open on the discussion more broadly for open finance. There's an expert group um, which is also being launched to gather more views um, across the sector and the review of PSD2 later this year is very much going to play into the debate around where the direction of, of travel should be. So that that's really where Europe is looking to go, definitely wants to take it to the next level. In Asia, Matt, is it a similar story or more of a mixed picture? I'd say more of a mixed picture. The concept of open finance hasn't really sort of gained a lot of traction here. But I think what we will see is this sort of increased focus on consumer data rights and seeing a lot more of that built in through uh, privacy legislation and other initiatives to ensure that there's appropriate governance around data. That's something that, you know, hopefully we'll see develop in a way that, um, you know, we can we can see um, more connectivity between different products and services provided in the financial space, whether that be insurance, pensions, wealth management or, or other areas such as those identified in our previous podcast on digital identity. It's been a really interesting discussion on you know all, all of the sort of different aspects of open banking across Europe, the UK and Asia. I think the, the key things that I really took away from that is we are likely to see a lot of regulatory convergence on this over the next couple of years. Whilst the EU may have taken a little bit of a lead on this, uh, I think there's a fantastic opportunity for, for many of our clients to engage in the consultation process and learn from some of those early issues and implementation challenges that we've already seen in Europe. But also, I, I think when we look at the other side of it, um, the market is attributing enormous value to a lot of the fintechs. Uh, and many of them who have capitalized early on um, open banking are going to have a lot of firepower as they, as they come further into the implementation phase to make them competitors in their own right against many of the traditional finance players. That does mean that it, there are opportunities here for all sectors of the market to look at ways in which they can interact and benefit from open banking. Look, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more detail, please do get in touch with any of us to discuss further. Otherwise, you can find our client briefings, blogs, and a variety of other fintech materials on our dedicated fintech page at freshfields.com. But on behalf of Claire, Natalie, and me, a big thank you, and hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thank you.